everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. On tonight's show, we will hear the story of Irish immigrants who were induced to join the U.S. Army and were sent to the Republic of Texas to fight in the newly declared Mexican-American War of 1846. However, these newly arrived Irish Catholics soon learned the opinion uh, soon reached the opinion that the U.S. Army was an invader of the lands of the people of Mexico. On tonight's show, we'll hear about the U.S. government's pretext to march south from the negotiated border of Texas to seize further land all the way down to the Rio Grande. The use of freshly arrived European conscripts to build the ranks of the newly professionalized U.S. military. The discrimination and harm done to the large wave of arriving Catholic immigrants as well as to the Catholics of Mexico. Mexico and the Caribbean, and much, much more music, both Gaelic and Spanish, Correros and Piper bands, inspired by the actions of the San Patricios Batallon. At that, uh, all of that tonight on Full Circle, I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay with us. again to Full Circle, where we always try to bring you voices not easily found on most airwaves. Tonight is no different. Our St. Patrick's Eve show presents the Baton... I'll get this right. Batallon San Patricio, an infantry unit created in 1846 of newly immigrated European conscripts. However, these new soldiers had discovered that their search for land and liberation would be much better served as members of the Mexican defenders rather than as troops of the invading U.S. military. 
called Deserters by the Americans, but welcomed as heroes by Mexico, the San Patricios, under Mexican leadership, fought for a people with whom they shared a religion and a common experience of oppression and discrimination. You just heard a small piece from a title... Uh, of a song, San Patricios, from an album of the same name. I'll be playing a number of selections from this album, so let me tell you a little bit about it. The album is a cooperative effort of the world-famous Irish ensemble, The Chieftains, with a number of well-known Mexican artists such as Lila Downs, Los Folkloristas, Carlos Nunez, Los Tigros del Norte, Mexican-American singer Linda Ronstant, all coordinated and produced by Rye Cooter, who is also a performer. This album features a Mexican bagpipe band, Banda de Gaita de, de Batallón San Patricio, with whom I am now completely in love. And yes, those introductory lyrics were being read by Liam Neeson. The San Patricios are celebrated as internationalists and heroes in Mexico and in Ireland. I learned about the same, uh, San Patricios through a co-worker who was helping to find funding for a documentary about the brigade. I never heard of this history, but truth be told, I am pretty fuzzy on the Mexican-American War. And But ever since entering the um, apprenticeship program here, I knew I would be creating a show for them. The producer of that documentary is Daniel Schreck of the Aslan Fund in New Mexico. I had an extensive interview with him and learned far more than I can present tonight. But we have highlights and we have links. As always, go to our webpage to visit an archive of all our shows and check there for the links we provide to materials and music from the shows. That website is kpfaapprentice.org. That's also the website where you can download an application for the next apprenticeship training group. The deadline for those applications is March 30th, so please follow your interest and visit the website, kpfaapprentice.org. Let's get some history of the brigade and the reasons for their dissatisfaction with par being part of the U.S. military force. Here is Daniel Schreck. Really what the St. Patrick Brigade is, disaffected Irish soldiers. During that time period in the 1840s, a lot of them are coming over from the potato famine. The Irish are coming down the gangplanks of the ships in New York, and they're being scooped up right at the bottom by the U.S. Army recruiters say, hey, three square meals a day, clean uniform, a rifle, we'll ship you by train straight to Texas. That's a lot of how the recruitment is occurring into the U.S. Army in Texas. John Riley, the Irish leader, has actually been discharged from the British Army in Canada, probably gets word that they're hiring for soldiers. He floats down a barge on the Mississippi River to go muster up at the U.S. Army barracks in New Orleans under a young U.S. Sam Grant. And then they're shipped over from New Orleans on ocean-going sailboats over to the coast of Texas at Corpus Christi, where Zachary Taylor is assembling a, a force comprised of the U.S. Army at that point is really, it's really the first time that in some ways that the U.S. Army is being organized as a regular army, and Taylor is having a lot of problems with the Southern Volunteer Regiments because they're not 
U.S. Army regulars, so they've been brought over by wealthier gentlemen from the South, like Jefferson Davis, who forms a volunteer regiment that he's the head of called the Mississippi Rifles, which figures prominently in the Battle of Monterey. You know, you've got other officers coming in like Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, people that you've heard of in the history books are all cutting their teeth on the U.S.-Mexico War. So what really happens in Texas is that the Irish have seen probably antebellum slavery in New Orleans. And so they go out to Texas. Robert E. Lee is there by now. Sam Grant. Uh, Grant actually becomes appointed quartermaster uh, by the time they get to Matamoros, which is where he learns, you know, a lot of the craft of being, you know, in the U.S. Army. What's happening to the Irish is that they're probably being affected by the fact that their leader back in Ireland, Daniel O'Connell, the leader of Catholic Emancipation, the first member of Parliament for Ireland once, the, the rules against Catholics participating in civil life in Ireland are lifted. Uh, he's come out as an abolitionist. Frederick Douglass had gone over to Ireland to uh, meet Daniel O'Connell. As the abolitionist uh, speeches are delivered, O'Connell delivers one in Ireland where he exhorts the southern plantocracy who are comprised of a layer of Scotch-Irish plantation owners to free the African. And so this is probably heard by the Irish soldiers. Now what we're talking about is 40 Irish soldiers out of probably 4,000 Irish and Irish-American soldiers that have enlisted in the U.S. Army in Texas. Now, the Mexican historians and a lot of historians focus, rightly so, on the Catholic-Protestant dynamic, the discrimination against Catholics, anti-Irish pogroms that are going on in a number of the major eastern cities. You know, this is an important component. But the other two components that, uh, you know, I thought that we should probably treat uh, and focus on a little more extensively because everybody's covered the Catholic-Protestant problem is to really look at the anti-slavery problem in Texas and the opposition to the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans in Texas. And this is where we start to analyze, okay, Texas is brought into the Union as a pro-slave state in 1836. That allows the Southern plantocracy then to extend cotton production, mostly the estuaries and the riverine systems of Texas, because cotton needs a lot of water. So they're probably growing Texas up these river systems. The other big component, though, of Texas economy, as introduced by all these settlers who are streaming into the state, they want to clear out the Comanches so that they can pick up Texas for cattle production. Why the Irish in history have such a well-developed social conscience. It has to do with 
the fact that uh, Ireland was under English occupation. They're trying to get their land back. They're hankering for agrarian reform. And so the Irish soldiers themselves are probably the sons of the wild geese, who are those Irish soldiers that had to go fight in General Wellington's British Army. So the 40 Irish troops in Texas who defect to the Mexican side are probably affected by, as soldiers of conscience, they don't want to fight to maintain Texas as a slave state. They don't want to fight against Native Americans. Uh, they probably are experiencing a severe amount of discrimination because they're Catholics. So they defect to the Mexican side. Now remember, Mexico has abolished slavery in 1829 under their first uh, Afro-Mexican president named Vicente Guerrero, who's of African and indigenous heritage. And of course, he actually gets the legislation passed in 1829 in the Mexican Congress to abolish slavery, and the white elite has him assassinated two years later for his trouble. But in any case, a lot of those Afro-Indigenous Mexican soldiers are in Santa Ana's army that comes north to try to defend Texas from the U.S. takeover. So again, we're looking at, okay, what's really happening with Texas? Polk has promulgated Manifest Destiny, and so Manifest Destiny says, as an exceptional people, we are destined to extend the rule of the United States to the coast of California. So they pick up Texas, the New Mexico Territory, California, in kind of one grand operation with three prongs. The Texas, we're discussing the Texas prong with Zachary Taylor and then later Winfield Scott, who brings up the naval flotilla to occupy Veracruz and then be able to go up and occupy Mexico City because they realize that they can't control Mexico unless they control the city from where Mexico is, is ruled. So the Irish soldiers really are soldiers of conscience. I mean, people have arguments of, okay, some of these guys were just trying to stay out ahead of the game and get to the next good thing they could get to. You know, that's plausible in the sense that, you know, there may have been a few guys that were more opportunistic, but, I mean, it's a pretty big decision to give up the promise of U.S. citizenship after seven years of service in the U.S. Army to go over to Mexico. Now, they were being offered citizenship and land after the conflict was over, and so a lot of the Irish who survive, you know, the final battle of Chapultepec Castle and are not hung as deserters. And the reason that they're not hung as deserters is some of them have defected before Congress declares war. So Winfield Scott was a kind of a stickler for legal detail. So anybody who had defected before Congress declared war was uh, a deserter, but they didn't 
get the death penalty. So a lot of these guys served in the military brig in Mexico City for six months. And then when the military occupation of Mexico City was over, they were released. And as I said, some of them ended up going to Puebla to retire and spend out the rest of their lives. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. That's the voice of Daniel Schreck of the Aslan Fund speaking on the history of the San Patricios Brigade. Coming to America and seeing the economic and political forces playing out with the fresh eyes, these Irish soldiers as newcomers were not serving out of patriotic fervor for the state. They were still able to observe conditions as outsiders and not as people already inside and defending the status quo. These immigrants had not taken on the identity of Americans and so could contrast and compare their futures in either Mexico or America and found good reason not to choose America. There are more stories to come. Again, my interview guest is Daniel Schreck, the producer of a documentary on the San Patricio Brigade. This documentary on in English is online at a little over 17 minutes and is part of a one-hour production that uh, was made in Spanish in Mexico to be used in high school and college courses to teach this particular history. The screenwriter for that documentary was Tomas Villa, grandson of Pancho Villa. Another production member was the great-nephew of Emiliano Zapata. You'll find links to the English-language version on our, on our uh, Full Circle webpage, and that's kpfaapprentice.org. In popular culture... There are often a few liberties taken and embellishments made to historic events. So we shouldn't let that get in the way of a good story, however. Next up, we will hear Dave Rovix singing his story of the St. Patrick's Brigade. My name is John Riley. I'll have your ear only a while. I left my dear home in Ireland. It was death, starvation, or exile When I got to America It was my duty to go Enter the army and slog across Texas To join in the war against Mexico And it was there in the pueblos and hillsides That I saw the mistake I had made Part of a conquering army with the morals of a bayonet blade And there amidst all these poor dying Catholics Screaming children, the burning stench of it all Myself and two hundred Irishmen Decided to rise to the call From Dublin City to San Diego We witnessed freedom denied So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion and we fought on the Mexican side We formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side We marched neath the green flag of St. Patrick Emblazoned with Erin Gobra Bright with the harp and the shamrock And Libertad para la Republica Just fifty years after Wolf Tone 
5,000 miles away The Yanks called us a legion of strangers And they can talk as they may But from Dublin City to San Diego We witnessed freedom tonight So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side We formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side We fought them in Matamoros While their volunteers were reaping the nuns In Monterey and Cerro Gordo We fought on as Ireland's sons We were the red-headed fighters for freedom Amidst these brown-skinned women and men Side by side we fought against tyranny And I dare say we'd do it again From Dublin City to San Diego We witnessed freedom tonight So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion we fought on the Mexican side We formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side and victims of fate from Dublin City to San Diego we witnessed freedom tonight so we formed the St. Patrick Battalion and we fought on the Mexican side from Dublin City to San Diego we witnessed freedom tonight so we formed the St. Patrick Battalion and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. You just heard the St. Patrick's Brigade by Dave Rovics. This particular song introduced me to the story of the brigade, and I've since learned that there are at least a dozen more history songs just in English uh, inspired by the brigade. Do yourself a favor and start an online search. Uh, there is so much great music out there. 
Let's get more into the history of this twist in the Mexican-American War. We're going to return to my interview with producer Daniel Schreck. This part of the interview focuses on the U.S. Army as it existed at that time. State militia were still a prevalent form of military power in the U.S. The federal government was still in the process of expanding into a professional and permanent national army. The Mexican-American conflict was declared a war by Congress, and the federal troops therein learned a great deal about military campaigning, including coordinating use of their emerging naval power. I asked about these military developments, about the political goals given to the army, and about the objectives of the volunteer and mercenary militia that joined in, but that were not fully coordinated with the Army. Here again is Daniel Schreck. So, Daniel, could you talk a little bit about um, the development or the use of the Mexican-American War for the development of a standing or professional, whatever the correct term is, Army for the U.S.? Well, I mean, as I understand it... Roughly up until the U.S.-Mexico War, most of what had been going on were kind of wealthy gentlemen, you know, bringing soldiers under their command, volunteers from their communities into volunteer regiments to basically be a civilian army. By the U.S.-Mexico War, Zachary Taylor is trying to build a regular army. He still has to contend with the volunteer regiments that are being brought to the theater of operations in Texas by guys like, you know, Jefferson Davis, who, as we mentioned before, brings a volunteer regiment from Mississippi called the Mississippi Rifles. And then, you know, that's partly your, another question is, you know, what's the interaction between the regular army and the volunteers? I mean, they are camping, you know, in the same military encampments. So for instance, there's a famous black and white lithograph of Taylor's camp at Corpus Christi along the beach, and they're all camped in tents you know, just on the high side of the beach. So how did the how did the regular army deal or coordinate with these volunteer brigades or were the volunteer militia offering themselves up to the to the regular army and were following orders and being part of the campaign directly? Well, right. So, I mean, I'm not sure I can give you the technical answer on the chain of command, but I'm sure that Taylor, you know, was giving the orders. They were participating in the operations. Um, Where we know about it in terms of our project is where they go off campus, so to speak, to commit, you know, depredations against the civilian population. Remember, in some of these, you know, most of these military encampments, there builds up a huge camp follower type of operation where, 
you know, you have the gambling, the vice, the prostitution, um, that kind of stuff following in the train of these military encampments. And so that's where the Southern volunteers are getting into trouble. What were the goals separate from the army that many, that these militia might have uh, by coming into the uh, Republic of Texas? Right. So, I mean, those kind of go to what we were discussing before, which would be the political and economic goals. I mean, the economic goals are to have a place for settlers that are running out of room in Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, those kinds of states. It's it's opening it's you know, it's opening another big piece of real estate for development, getting people in there to settle it. Um, you're talking about cotton production and you're talking about raising cattle. And so they really needed the the expanse of Texas to graze cattle. Ostensibly, they were going in there to, you know, raise cotton along the the rivers, so where they had water and they could irrigate it. So those are the two big economic factors. I mean, the political factor is basically for the Southern plantocracy to extend its rule into another big piece of real estate that they can control economically. Why are these uh, Southern volunteers doing what they're doing? You know, I would probably err on the side of the economic motivations, but of course, what Gerald Horn is talking about as an historian, who's the other guy I'm reading along with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, is basically that you're constructing, you know, this identity of whiteness to kind of have a pan-European approach to bringing these settlers into the common project of colonization. Because if you have a power differential where the poor European settlers are being iced out at the bottom, they're going to naturally ally with the rebelling African slaves and the resisting indigenous peoples in their tribal nations. And so you're trying to give them enough piece of the pie to kind of bring them into this constructed synthetic identity of whiteness is what Gerald Horn is calling it. Yes, and I wondered, in the face of victory... Would there be an expectation that these militia would be able or would be among the first to make land claims, uh, not just for themselves, but for their um, patrons who well, sent them out? So you, you know, and I do remember you mentioned, you know, what were the U.S.'s plans vis-a-vis taking more of Mexico? Remember, Tomas Villa, our scriptwriter for the video, basically had a nice line in it where he says that the United States took uh, virtually, what did he say, half of, uh, half of Mexico's, 
just a little bit less than half of Mexico's territory. So Texas, probably, if you're counting New Mexico, Arizona, and California, the uh, little parts of other states that are in there, yeah, that's that looks like almost half of Mexico's national territory ends up in this west westward expansionistic move. There were, you know, talk. There was talk in Congress and in other quarters about, you know, invading during the invasion of Mexico to just keep more of it. It didn't happen. You mentioned uh, how did the Rio Grande become the line? You know, they kept extending the line. So the f- the first line was a river line near to Corpus Christi called the river uh, the Rio Nueces. And then they just kept moving the line, you know, further and further. Um, Some historians are debating, you know, how the war got started. You know, did some Mexican guerrillas supposedly cross the line? And so it's like, okay, did they cross that line of the Rio Grande and attack somebody? And so the United States says, hey, you crossed the line, so we're coming after you. Of course, the line had been moved all the way down there so that the Mexicans, of course, felt that uh, they weren't crossing a line. They felt they were still in Mexico. So that's really how the war got started is uh, the incident of Mexican guerrillas coming across the line to attack somebody. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA, and this is our St. Patrick's Eve show. We are focusing on the Irish immigrant soldiers who in 1846 were inducted into the U.S. Army and uh, sent to fight in the new state, a slave state of Texas. The United States was at war with Mexico in an effort to extend the southern border of Texas all the way down to the Rio Grande. In fact, trying to seize all Mexican lands north of the Rio Grande, including what is now New Mexico and southern Colorado. Once on the front lines, some of these fresh Irish troops um, thought better of their status as members of what they saw as an invading Protestant force into a Catholic country. Let's try another musical version of this story, and this time from Ireland. This is a Irish rock band, The Fenians. When we abandoned Company K We left the Yankee infantry Said goodbye to the USA A country whose grand promise We never got to know To fight for Santa Ana And the freedom of Mexico To brand us all deserters Would imply that we once belonged But we were Irish and we were Catholic when the time and place was wrong And so we came to turn our backs On what we thought was a promised land When John Bull reared his ugly head Dressed up like Uncle Sam We had a sweet, simple glory And it 
up and the road A thorn in the side of a sand, the sand that we see old From Galway he did hail Mackie was a Dublin man A fighter without fail Armand down and Derry Represented in the ranks Kelly was a court man Who belted out the banks In the confidence of Busco We fought to hold the town the white flag three times raised And three times was pulled down No surrender for snap But we see older our adopted friends To the death we fight and face the rope So we fought on to the end We had a sweet simple glory And a mortal band of roads A thorn in the side of a and The sound of the
Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. You just heard the Irish band The Fenians with their composition, The San Patricios, from their album, Band of Rogues. I only wish I could invite you all down here to KPFA and join the dance party we've got going here in the broadcast studio. We archive our shows and links to all our materials at the Full Circle website, kpfaapprentice.org. And that's the website for the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, which brings you Full Circle every Friday night at 7 p.m. Please visit that website. We, are, we will now bring you another part of an extensive interview with the producer of the documentary San Patricios Battalion from the Asatlan Fund, Daniel Schreck. We'll be going further into the consequences of the incursion into Mexico, which the U.S. Congress legitimized by a declaration of war in 1846 and declared all Mexican lands above the Rio Grande River as U.S. territory. I'm asking Daniel Schreck to review some of the issues of colonialism, slavery, and genocide in this conflict, starting out with the fact that the troops themselves from colonized countries. Please note there's a tiny misspeak. The reference to Cromwell is from the 1640s, not the 1840s. And here's Daniel. Of the 140 that we know about that were in the brigade... Uh, 40 were Irish, and this is why we're calling it an internationalist brigade, because the rest of the guys were of German, Polish, English, there were some Americans in there. And so it really was a kind of an international potpourri of soldiers. And so the question that Danny Sheehan was addressing about the Irish in history is... Here's some guys that are fighting slavery in 1846. You know, the Irish were being pummeled by Cromwell back in the 1840s, and so Cromwell betrays his radical Puritan allies, the Diggers and the Levelers, who were opposed to slavery and wanted the transatlantic slave trade shut down and it was just going to be too lucrative for the parliament to take over that business that had formerly been run by the crown and so parliament takes it over so you're talking about 200 years of transatlantic opposition to the slave trade you're talking about 200 years of indigenous people resisting the taking of their lands and so of course there's a huge amount of history that's going on in the caribbean the east coast seaboard as all this starts to move inland and then manifest destiny is going to pick up the last third of the western united states to put into the united states real estate portfolio that's probably, you know, the political reasons behind it. I mean, the other reason you could extract from it, of course, is that capitalism is using slave labor to extract resources from native land. And that's where you get to your, that's where you get to your great historians, 
Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz and her Indigenous People's History of the United States, and you get to Gerald Horn's new book, Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. And so you're starting to get now, I mean, we're doing the piece, you know, that relates to the U.S.-Mexico War. Uh, Gerald Horn really gives you a great overview of the 17th century, and then Roxanne does a terrific job of really just showing how the whole thing worked on a larger North American continent level. These two historians have really led the charge in these new studies, and so from Standing Rock to today, you're starting to get the word decolonization on the table. So the question I asked my Mexican historians later on was, let's go back to 1836, 1835. You know, do the people of Texas, now who are the people of Texas, what we would call El Pueblo de Tejas, who are the people of Texas? Do they ever get to decide what they want? Okay, they're, you know, Mexico, okay, maybe Mexico is overstretched. They've only got 4,000 Mexican settlers in Texas trying to hang on to some small ranches and haciendas, some larger haciendas, let's be fair, to the fact that they've got some bigger stuff going on. You know, so the United States basically takes Texas away from Mexico as a pretext to really take Texas away from the Comanche Confederacy. Because the Comanche Confederacy under Quanta Parker, which is covered very well in this book called Empire of the Summer Moon, that really shows that it took from 1835 to 1870, even for the U.S. Army to supposedly pacify Texas, it took them 35 years to deal with the Comanche resistance. And then as soon as the Comanche resistance is more or less over, they're trying to do the same thing in New Mexico with the Apache resistance. So, you know, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz does just a fantastic job of talking about how the North American continent was taken piece by piece from a foothold in Massachusetts to George Washington's war against the Iroquois Confederacy to just all of it, all the way across the continent. And so the word decolonization then means could one, as an historian, ask the rhetorical question, has the United States ever been decolonized? You know, we talk about the decolonization of Africa. We talk about the decolonization of Asia, South America. What does it mean to say that the Native American nations, under the argument by Vine Deloria Jr., the Native American nations of North America are still sovereign. They've always been sovereign. And they've never been disestablished. Can you disestablish somebody's sovereignty because might makes right? I don't think you can. The Irish proved it, you know, with Irish independence in the 1920s. You know, what did that take us? 700, 600 years to do that? These issues are always on the table. I mean, Roxanne's new book called Loaded about the history of the Second Amendment. Why did all these settlers need guns? Yes, some of it is to hunt down 
fugitive slaves, and the rest of it is to make war on the indigenous people, take their re- take the real estate, and uh, push the indigenous people further and further back until, you know, presumably at one point they're going to be gone. But the thing is, it's never gone. They're not gone. They've survived it, and thank God, you know, we were able to learn from them. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. That was the voice of our featured guest, Daniel Schreck. The intertwined objectives of land expansion, creation of states intended to enter the Union as slave states, the importation of slave populations to develop agriculture, the doctrine of manifest destiny, and the elimination of indigenous peoples and their resistance to displacement were barely separate objectives. They were really all one program of the federal government, along with the states, to control and develop the entire North American continent, south of uh, Canada and north of Mexico. And in the war against Mexico from 1846, we see that the U.S. federal government was using force to change the border with Mexico and to change what north of Mexico means. The um, quote, which I cannot uh attribute properly right now um, is quite true as it happened here, which is um, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us and the border has been moving uh, south on the Mexican nation uh, for many years and by 1848 uh, was at the Rio Grande River. Daniel mentions the work of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and her books, which are um, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. He spoke about that. And then her newest book, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. And I'd like to point out to listeners that Roxanne will be appearing at a KPFA public event in Berkeley on Wednesday, April 25th at 7.30 p.m. You can go to the our website, kpfa.org, and see all of the speakers' um, series events that are brought to you by this station. Um, Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, to remind you, is speaking in Berkeley on April 25th on her new book, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Music, 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 please. We deserve some more music, especially when dealing with the hard questions in hard times. I'm going to go back to the Chieftains and their collaborative album with Mexican and Mexican-American musicians called, of course, San Patricios. This is a glorious revisit of the artists on the whole album. Please enjoy the scope of this music.
the dancing only gets better when the La Onda Bejita crew shows up. This is uh, Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA FM Radio. We have lots of links to what has been covered here tonight. And the music you have heard all on our Full Circle website. That's kpfaapprentice.org. This show and many others are archived there. That's also the website where you can find out more about the First Voice Apprenticeship Program and apply for this extraordinary opportunity to learn show production and broadcast skills in partnership with this station. Applications for the upcoming cohort must be turned in by 5 p.m. on Friday, March 30th. All that at kpfaapprentice.org. I'm wishing everyone a happy, safe, and sane St. Patrick's celebration. And do raise a toast to those open hearts, eyes, and minds of the San Patricio Brigade of 1848. May all of us nurture our common need for liberation and common cause to secure it. That brings us up to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle for a gender-expansive conversation. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant, and our technical director is Frank Sterling. I've been your host this evening, Darlene Pagano. Thanks to Laura on the board, our tech assist provided by Aria of Group 43. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle, and stay tuned. La Onda Bejita is next.